Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is John Ronson, a journalist of whom I've been ridiculously fond ever since I encountered his first book, Them, Adventures with Extremists, about 15 years ago. He's a genuine multimedia talent now, working in documentary, radio, and film, most recently adapting his experiences as a sideman for Frank Sidebottom into Frank for Lenny Abramson, and now co-writing director Bong Joon-ho's Magnificent Okja, which is available around the world on Netflix. And later this month, he'll launch a new podcast, The Butterfly Effect, on Audible and Amazon Prime. John picked Let the Right One In, Tomas Alfredson's terrific 2008 drama about the budding friendship between a bullied little boy named Oscar and an eerily confident little girl named Ellie, who is much, much older. If you know the movie, you're aware that that description barely scratches the surface of what happens in it. If you don't know it, well, you really ought to watch it first, uh, definitely before listening to this episode. And the same for Okja, come to think of it. Uh, Our conversation is just loaded with spoilers for both films. But if you have seen them, ooh, it's a good one. Uh, Incidentally, this episode comes with another noise warning. We recorded it at John's home in New York City, and while neither of us heard anything at the time, it seems that his computer's hard drive was making little chirpy noises throughout our conversation, and the mic picked it up. Sorry. Pay it no mind, though. You'll be able to hear us just fine. This is someone else's movie. Uh, I think Let the Right One In is my favorite film. Really? Yeah, it really... um you look surprised. Well, it, it's very rare that someone will choose something so recent as an absolute favorite. I mean, I will fight for Shaun of the Dead mm. for my ten or maybe even my five favorite films ever. But, yeah, it, it's one of those things yeah. where enough time hasn't gone by. Speaking of Edgar Wright, mm-hmm. I, at, the, at the premiere party for The Many Stared Goats in London, Thomas Alfredson was there and Edgar Wright was there. Yeah. And I went up to Thomas Alfredson and said... Um, I just want to tell you that Let the Right One In is my favourite film ever. And he's like, thank, thank you very much. And then a couple of minutes later, Edgar Wright came over and said to him, I just want to tell you that uh, Let the Right One In is like my favourite film of the past six months. <laughs> <laughs> and then I told him that I just said it was my favourite film ever, so he felt a bit sheepish. No, no, it's good. Yeah. That, of course, we process through scales you know, yeah. and distance. <laughs> he uh, practically insulted Thomas <laughs> Alfredson after what I'd said. Only by following him. Yeah. That's wonderful. Um, yeah, no, I think it is. I'd, um, like when, um, you know, people sometimes say, oh, that film or that piece of music, like, it really fucked me up. It like, really got inside my head and, like, screwed with me psychologically. Like, that, that never really ever happened to me. Um, I, I, didn't under, I didn't quite understand it when people said that. Because um, I, 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 I like things a lot and I dislike things sometimes. Um, but I've never liked something so much it's actually messed with me. But Let the Right One In did. That's the first time that I've, I felt something is like screwed with my head. I, I liked it so much. Yeah. And what was the experience? I mean, how did it play? Uh, well, I saw it. Um, I saw it on my own. I've seen it. I've only. I think I've only seen it like three times. Um, I saw it on my own. I've got a feeling my wife was maybe away, and it was in London at the Barbican. Okay. And I, I didn't know anything about it. I hadn't seen the trailer or anything. I went in completely 
completely um, oblivious to what I was about to see. And one of the great things about the film is that it takes it takes the film a little while to reveal even what genre it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I totally recommend people to see it without knowing anything. Yeah. So if anybody is listening to this and they don't know anything about the film, stop I would suggest right they now. stop and see the film and then start again. Yeah. Because really it benefits from you know. No- I mean, all films benefit from you know nothing. When you write screenplays, you are writing it like assuming that the audience is going to know nothing. Mm. Um, but of course that almost never happens. By the time somebody sees a film, they've seen the trailer, and they've seen the little teasers and the gifs. And no, I hate that. Yeah. I just, I, I, <sighs> I missed it theatrically, so I envy you the experience of seeing it in a theatre and, and blind and, mm. and unaware. My experience of it was when the DVD came out, the Blu-ray came out, uh, and I watched it with the wrong subtitles. Which was oh, there was a controversy about that, mm-hmm. right? Magnolia, Magnolia, and in in Canada, Mongrel, which used their um, their uh, used their subtitles. Subtitles, yeah. So used, tell, tell me what file. happened. Well, it was simply simplified. They were they were dumbed down, and it's possible that it was the result of just. Um, it might have been... Apparently, this is fairly commonplace mm-hmm. that you'll see subtitles that compress and streamline and perhaps not refine. They simply don't translate. They, they just, you know, let's go over here. Right. As opposed to, oh, this is my uncle's shop. It's very lovely. Huh. Um, and that they did that. And they did that, and it was an accident. They immediately remastered and re-released it with... Now, if you pick up the Blu-ray, you can find original theatrical subtitles designated. Right. But I saw the far less evocative and poetic version um, I've been 12 for a long time I think was something just like I'm, I've always been 12 or something like that but it's not nearly as evocative yeah I'm surprised that Magnolia would do that because they're a classy well, I'm sure it was an accident they're classy distributors yeah it may have yeah. simply been that they used to file for cable television or yeah. some less uh, exacting release pattern maybe mm. the airplane version although I can't imagine anyone watching this film on an airplane yeah but I do I do remember there being that big controversy about mm-hmm. the film I'm, I'm certain I saw the proper version well yeah. I must have done well I did of yeah. course well in England it would have been yeah it would have been untouched I had to go hunt down a copy in, <laughs> at Amoeba Records in Los Angeles right ultimately was where I finally found one that was that was proper it was proper wow well then I saw it a second time um, with my wife uh that night, like, I don't know, it really, it messed, like, the first time I saw it, I was on my own, and and it kind of screwed with me, it, it hit me on some, you know, troubling psychological level. Really? Yes, and I think I know why, it's kind of obvious why. Um, Please. Okay. Enlighten the listener. Well, um... It's it's a it's a wish fulfillment fantasy for kids who had a bad time at school. Yeah, uh, which I did. So any kid who had a bad time at school will this film will be like like an explosion going off in their head. Yeah. Um, so that's the reason why. There is a. I, I didn't have a. I had a rotten time in junior high, but by high school I kind of figured out who my people were. Right. Um, but this story of. It's, Oscar and Ellie. Yes, it's so sad. The the sense that Ellie just collects people for this purpose, mm. and we're watching her get a new one. 
It's a very bleak ending. Yeah. Because uh, you're right. It takes you a moment to realise yeah. this, that Oscar, Oscar's going to be the man who... He's her familiar. Yeah, yeah, the man who kills himself. Her Renfield. Renfield. Yeah, that's Oscar's fate. Mm, but it's, it's going to still... be some sleazy old pedophile. Yeah, a procurer. Yeah. Um, and he's happy about it. He's because he doesn't know. He's bewitched. Yeah. Yeah, he doesn't know that his life is gonna. I mean, what an what an ending. Yeah. He doesn't. We we know how the rest of his life is going to unfold, mm. and he is just caught in a in a perfect moment. Yeah childhood happiness that yeah. isn't happiness at all but it also retroactively fills in everything about her previous caretaker for lack mm. of a better term and why he dotes on her why he's so it's the idea that you're watching that we've stumbled into the point in a cycle that is just so so cynical and awful yeah. and that this little child has come up with this plan because she's not a child or she's not even necessarily a she but there's so much to unpack in that and starting with the ending actually makes sense because then we get to go back to the beginning and mm. figure out as as viewers the second time through just how all the pieces work but she's not malevolent you're making it sound like she's malevolent but she's not I mean, well, she has to no she's she, surviving yeah and also she wants to have a some kind of romance with Oscar I think mm-hmm. you know she's happy in that moment too she's not being manipulative yeah. She's happy in that moment, too. She's as much of a victim as this as, as he is. That's true. I mean, we have no idea what her origin is, and it doesn't seem like a life she's chosen or an existence that she she mm. particularly enjoys. Yeah, she's not doing this... She's not, like, pulling Oscar into her world because she's a kind of manipulative sociopath. She's doing it because mm. she has to, but also because I think she's very fond of him I think she does rescue him on a number of occasions Mm -hmm. yeah she's quite spectacularly sometimes but also sometimes just by being there to distract someone else there's a and that's what Alfredson brings to because I I don't know if you've read the book I assume you have Uh, no I started reading it and and I enjoyed it very much but I just never carried on yeah mentioning pedophile because he's not in the film Mm -hmm. Um, but he is in the book but he is in the book and it's the book is much, much crueler. Mm-hmm. The, uh, I, I read it after the fact, so it, I think it would have been really shocking to read the book and then see the film and realize how gentle the film is. It's just—it's a much more compassionate perspective mm. on every character. Well, Thomas Alfredson's a very gentle and lovely man. Yeah. So that's, that's the reason. He seems—he seems to have a—he's concerned. I think for the characters and wants them to be okay which is something that yeah. they can't be really yeah given the story but that's that weird hopefulness running through the film I think he brought that it's not in, it's not on the page the page is the book is very grim and um, yeah it's it's much more deliberate I think with, with the film you have the sense that people are sort of stumbling forwards into what mm-hmm. they do did you know that that he revoiced Ellie completely. No. Yes, because she's a little girl playing the character, she had like quite a high, sort of childish voice, and it wasn't working. And so later on in the edit, he got a grown woman to revoice every every word. Oh my god, that's. Te- mm. I never would have guessed that. Technically, it's un- it's. Un- you can't see it. You can't no, feel it. can't see it at all. Great. No, and it just it just makes Ellie all the more 
otherworldly mm-hmm. um, and sort of yeah special and magical I, I think the town where they grew up in is kind of like the town I'd grew up in I suppose like a sort of slightly grim European <laughs> northern European town I mean uh, you know their town is higher up and so more snowy than Cardiff mm-hmm. and and Cardiff has its you know middle class areas and some very you know pretty areas mm-hmm. but in general a sort of you know suburban town in a northern European city they're kind of all kind yeah. of pretty similar to each other and and so the school that Oscar goes to is kind of similar to the school that I went to and um, he uh, uh, yeah and I think his kind of experiences were kind of not totally dissimilar to my experiences and I just would have loved to have a an, uh, an Ellie turn up in my life to, mm. to kill and behead all the bullies <laughs> yes to murder your torment yeah it's perfect. Um. <laughs> um, it's not a. I, I remember Thomas Alfredson saying to me, I must have met him more than once. I mean, my memory gets so bad, mm. but I think I must have met him more than once, or certainly have more than one conversation with him, because we, I remember us having a conversation about how it's not a vampire film. <laughs> I remember saying it's not a vampire film, and it's obviously not a vampire film, in the same way that Oakchair is not a monster movie. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're, I guess they're both magical realists fables about you know something very real mm-hmm. yeah they have pieces that we recognize mm. I think that's what that's what distinguishes the host as well in, in Bong's work is that you're dealing with fantastical situations but you're dealing with them in an absolutely realistic way yeah and oh, I'm sorry yeah no I just said Bong's so great the other uh, <laughs> the other uh, similarity I think I was thinking about this before you arrived that all the films that move me the most all have something in common, which is they're kind of about childhood friendships. So I think pretty much all of my favourite movies are about about some kind of, you know, difficult childhood and then a friendship happens and it's complicated. So uh, Okja Mm -hmm. is about a childhood friendship. Um, And so is Let the Right One In. So is Heavenly Creatures, which is another of my favourite films. Uh, yeah. uh, I just did an episode on that. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Maybe a month and a half ago. Right. Who, who was the person? Oh, Michael O'Shea, the director of The Transfiguration. Oh, okay. Uh, which is also, in fact, about a, uh, a young boy who believes he's a vampire and the slightly older girl that he befriends right. in Queens. Okay. Um, so what are the... Which is a childhood? strange mirror image of itself. Yeah. What other great childhood friendship films are there? Kez. Kez. Oh, a, a really mind. great one which um, not enough people know, uh, The Amazing Mr. Blunden. Do you know that one? No. I'm, I'm always surprised at how unknown this film is. It's a great film. It's I'm a, assuming English, British. Um, yeah, it's oh, made by the same team that made The Railway Children. Okay. And it was just after The Railway Children. And it's basically a ghost story version of The Railway Children. That sounds great. Yeah. It's the railway children with ghosts. Mm -hmm. Uh, So much of that was so specific, I guess it never travelled. Yeah. Um, But again, that's about childhood friendship. It's about about a brother and a sister becoming friends with a ghost brother and sister. Okay. Yeah. Sounds fascinating. It's great. It's a great film. Mm. Yeah, childhood friendship. Uh, E.T., of course, is a a touchstone. And I don't know if you saw the 
the comment Dan Harmon made, which was just perfect on that episode of Harmontown. Like, About what Oak if ET, yeah. If, yeah, Okja is basically what if ET tasted delicious, which is <laughs> such a horrifying, perfect way to sum it up. <laughs> I know, I really laughed at that. I, I heard that podcast and really liked it. Um, yeah. yeah, the last week or so I've been really enjoying seeing reactions to Okja. I found this video yesterday, I sent it to a couple of friends of mine in a slightly cruel way. It was this girl, she just watched it and she filmed herself just bawling her eyes out. And she said, uh, I'm about to give a, um, an Okja spoiler, so, so stop if you, yeah. if you haven't seen it. I may actually bleep this out. Okay. Let's see what it is. She said, um, she's like crying and crying and finally she gets the words out and it was like, I just saw Okja. Um, it's about a super pig. They kill all the super pigs. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I just it made me so happy that I contributed to a film that's just breaking hearts around oh, the world. It's wonderful and horrible at the same time. Yeah. Uh, I will not include this because, but I have to know. Did who came up? How did you figure out you could do the moment with the fence? Um, that uh, that that was Bong. Basically, in Bong's first draft, the the slaughterhouse was there and. And the baby was there, actually, mm-hmm. right from the first draft. Um, I, I wrote all the dialogue that happens in that scene, but, but the scene itself and the concept of that scene was all bones. Um, it's just... Yeah. It, Towards the end um, of, of the process, like at the very, very end, Bong had this other idea, which was, after the baby, to have all the, all the super pigs like, let out these howls. Um, which was inspired by the ending of the movie The Battle of Algiers where the women all let out these howls and um, so that was a very late addition um, yeah seeing, seeing that scene um, oh you said you were going to go see it with an audience yeah yeah oh yeah I, I saw it the other night with an audience and, and I mean I'd seen it before a couple at, at the Cannes premiere and at the New York premiere and you know people just just sob um and but it's really interesting to see, you know, I've got like six drafts of Ultra on my computer and actually last night I was curious. So I went back to Bong's first draft and, and read how he wrote the slaughterhouse scene mm-hmm. and then read how I how I kind of adapted it in the second draft and then I and then I went to the fifth draft and saw how it had adapted again, um, like when it sort of been battered between me and Bong and it was such a so good to see uh, you know, to see something just Home, home in, you know. Yeah, it's uh, such a yeah to just sharpen. It's such a powerhouse moment. Yeah. I just, I mean, I didn't, I, it's, I can, I, I always worry that I sound like I'm sucking up to people, but I've already written a review. I'm, my opinion's out there. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize I was weeping. Right at that moment, I just like, oh, oh, so, oh that's what that is, and yeah. just, just, I know it's, it's, it's just such, heartbreaking, so devastating, but it's also. Mm. It's also where this was going the whole time. It's not a cheat. Right? That's one thing I love so much about Okja is, I said this to Bong and Tilda quite recently, mm-hmm. like one of the great things about Okja, and it seems weird because I co-wrote it, so I shouldn't, <laughs> be, I shouldn't be allowed to say words like that, um, is the fact that it signposts several times in mm-hmm. the film, this film is going to end up in the slaughterhouse. Yeah. And, and you still never believe it. And that's such a reflection on real life that yeah, yeah. you just don't believe that the meat that you're eating comes from a slaughterhouse. You just don't want to think about yeah, it. Yeah, you're actively avoiding it. Yeah, so there's a number of times in the film, like at the beginning, 
Tilda's character says, most importantly of all, they need to taste fucking delicious. There's a moment when Mija's grandfather points at a picture of Uncle and says, this is its fate. It's, it's, this is going to be the, the hock. This is going to yeah. be the tenderloin or whatever. Um, and you still don't expect the film to end in Slaughterhouse. And, and, and when it does, it both comes as an enormous surprise, but also, of course, like, yeah. of course... Um, and that's how I felt when I read Bong's first draft. Oh. It's like when when it gets to the part where it says "interior slaughterhouse night," I, I, I all at once I kind of gasped, and I thought, "Of course, like it has it has yeah. to end here." And then when um, um, so then I I loved like writing writing all the dialogue for that scene, you know, so Nancy's horrific speech about, you know, we're business people, here's the tenderloin, it's for the sophisticated restaurants. I mean, I just wrote that incredibly fast because the scene was so brilliant. And then when the screenplay started going around the studios, the note Bong kept getting over and over again was, well, you're going to cut, you're going to cut the slaughterhouse scene, right? And my, my heart sank when I sort of heard that, that this was the note that we were getting because mm-hmm. the whole film is leading up to the slaughterhouse it's all leading up to the slaughterhouse and then you know Netflix stepped in like like you know knights in shining armour yeah. and said just do do whatever you want thank god yeah it's I think that's why it's so powerful because no movie should get there yeah. we've, been, we've just come to believe that that's how movies will work we're gonna even if there's a sad ending it won't be Horrifying, because mm. that's not the kind of movie we've been watching. Even though the movie we've been watching has been literally everything, yeah, uh, within every genre. There's an action sequence. There's violence. There's anti-violence. There's comedy. There's romance. There's yeah, romance is more spiritual. But uh, there's romance between Okja and Mija. Yeah, they they truly yeah. love each other. And I just for me, it was the slow dawning that Okja is probably a little smarter than Mija. Yeah, you see it at the beginning. An- another really brilliant thing of Bong's. Um, which was in Bong's original draft, was at first, Okja is is kind of like, like he's smart, um, and there's something kind of magical about him, but he's also like a big lump of meat. Okay. Uh, and I think that was deliberate, because that was in Bong's original draft. Like, um, like when you first see him, he's sort of slow and doesn't, feel, doesn't seem that intelligent. And he is like a big great big lump of meat and and his intelligence isn't there right from the very very beginning it's something that you sort of learn about as the film progresses mm. quite early on like within 10 or 15 minutes yeah. of the film you know that he's really smart the moment where she uses physics it's just yeah yeah yeah, yeah. And you can see it in the CG and the, the creature is thinking yeah oh yeah it's so brilliant. wonderful again that was in Bond's first draft oh, wow. Um, going back to the to, to the end of Let the Right One well, In, I was going to say the the yeah. it, when you say this film was always heading towards the slaughterhouse, you could say that about Let the Right One yeah. In as well. It, it really does have that in common. Also, you said that Okja has a kind of happy ending, um, and you can read it that way. I mean, obviously not for the not for everyone, not else. for the super pigs that die, but for the very small number of super pigs that survive. Yeah. Well, it's that um, Schindler's List thing: save one life, save the world. Yeah. Um, however, one somebody said this to me after like. I can't remember, either I read it in a review or somebody said it to me, but someone said, you can see the last shots of the film as a happy ending, like a kind of benediction. Um, But you could also see it, I don't know if this is entirely fair, because Mita does smile a little at the end, Mm. 
but you could say it as like Octo and Major have seen such horrors that they're never going to be the same again yeah. and actually it's a film about two it's a film that finishes a big about two really damaged people yeah. who are going to be traumatised for the rest of their lives <laughs> you could you could read the ending that, that way yeah. they're refugees now yeah or they've just they've seen horrors and they have thousand yard stairs mm. they're like they're like returning soldiers from Vietnam yeah oh I don't know I didn't take that away I got the they're like Christopher Walken in the deer hunter <laughs> oh, god just looking for another way to die yeah Jesus <laughs> Uh, no, I took away the beauty of finding out what it is that Mija does under Okja's ear. Mm. And that little payoff just made me very, very happy. Right. Well, we don't know what she does, it's right? It's just blowing. It's, it's, yeah. And, and Okja does it back, which makes it yeah. okay. Unless I've misinterpreted this. No, you know what? You would be well, in a good look, position to tell me. I am in a good position to tell you because I'm going to get the screenplay. <laughs> um, I have to keep this in now. We can't not use Oh, this. you feel you use all of this. Mm. As long as people realise that they're getting like ultra spoilers as well as like... Yeah, I will spoilers. make sure people know that up front. Because um, this, is, this is ultimately the whole point of the podcast, which almost never happens is when you can directly connect the inspiration to the art, to right. someone else's work. Okay, I'm going to get up the final draft of the screenplay. Now, what I will tell you, though, is that Bong made a lot of changes during the shoot. Sure. So, in fact, that blowing could could be exactly what you said, like intended throughout. But Mm. in the screenplay... So is Mijo originally whispering? We don't see it? Well, I'll tell you exactly what... what I confirmed it. No, it Um, just says Mijo tells Okja to kill them all. (laughs) I'm glad that didn't make it. Hang on, where is it? Um... And put whisper. Will you cut out if it if it takes me too long? Of course. Okay, here we go. Mm-hmm. It looks like they're really talking to each other. Mija holds up Okja's large floppy ear and whispers something. We can't hear what, but the soft whisper combined with the late afternoon sunlight leaves us with an achingly beautiful feeling. Okja nods as if responding to whatever Mija said. Ah. So in the in the screenplay they're talking in a in a language in a secret language to each other and it's not just blowing okay so is Oksha um, supposed to be speaking as well in response at the end yeah well what okay what I don't know is that it's quite possible that when Bong was shooting that scene he did decide he did make the decision because there's other changes there's, mm-hmm. there's there's many changes that that director Bong made during the filming that aren't in the screenplay but to your intent um, yeah but to the intent of, of the screenplay they were they were whispering to each other in a secret language oh, yeah well it says right there on the <laughs> that's writing. true yeah but because we never see her lips move and we, the, the, her face is obscured by the ear both times uh-huh. it just I thought that was what was happening that she's just reassuring uh-huh. her saying something sweet to Okja but then at the very end when we see Okja just sort of breathe at her and it spoke to me to a history of their Mm-hmm. Friendship when they were very little, that might have been a way to calm her down. There's all sorts of things yeah. that I couldn't fully understand, but we're not supposed to understand, which just made it somehow pure and beautiful. Well, you know what? That scene of at the very end of the two of them communicating or blowing, that's mm. not in the screenplay. Huh. Um, so I'm just checking, and it's not. I mean, the, the, the scene itself's in the screenplay, you know, there. Um, but there's no detail, there's no specific. Yeah, I'm just looking. Um, 
With her eyes closed, Okja flaps her ears and creates a gentle breeze for the piglet. Mm. Lying on Okja's back, Mija looks up at the trees and the blue sky. See, none of that happens in the film. Yeah. Um, so Bong will have, you know, made all those decisions like between, yeah, during pre-production. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, Okja's not present, so whatever is happening is created... Yeah, although no, you know what they must no. I don't. I, my 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 feeling is that is that um, it would have been impossible to film with without them knowing what would eventually happen when when mm-hmm. the CGI was done. I think anyway, That's and then true. yeah, and then it goes from that. So actually, in in the screenplay, it ends with um, there was Mija's asleep on Okja, the piglets asleep on top of Mija. And then it cuts to dinner, and there's dialogue. Mijo, I'm here. Hurry up, the food's getting cold, I'm coming. None of that's in the... In the yeah, no, yeah. it just drifts away. Yeah. Um, director Bong is a great, great director. Like, if I look through the screenplay now, and I see the parts that he left out or changed, um, he, he really knew what he was doing, you know? He, he hones and hones and hones, you know, until it's just perfect. Mm-hmm. And his films are so specific in their... They sort of... they It's mm-hmm. like ice dancing, just switching between tones and genres. And, and I, every time I see it, when that happens, when the veer comes, when the, when, the, when the swerve comes, I sort of almost resist it because that's not how movies are supposed to work. But then he catches me and gets me back yeah. right away. Um, he's brilliant. And not only is he brilliant, he's incredibly nice. Um, and kind and generous and um, you know just working with him was a was such a delight oh man yeah. I've never met him I've, I've loved all of his work and I'm just I'm envious of that relationship that you guys can have he's the best um, but as far as tonal shifts that, that's my hook to get back to Let the Right One In so, because it is again it's the same thing it is a friendship movie it's a kids movie that's really not for children mm. but it captures the tone Although there's one tonal shift in Let the Right One In that doesn't work. Um, Let the Right One In is a perfect film with with just one exception. I feel bad even mentioning it because no, it's a perfect film and it's my favourite film, but there's just one tone, tonally wrong moment, and that's The Cats. Okay. Um, is it, yes, the, the cat attack, the fact that cats... The, one, yeah. of the, one of the things I love the most about every new iteration of a, of a horror monster uh-huh. is learning how the rules work in this world. Right. And one of the things about vampires in this movie, in the world of Let the Right One In, is that cats really hate them. Yeah. To the point where they will swarm them. Yeah. So there's a scene of a woman who's just becoming a vampire getting like completely covered in cats. Mm-hmm. And she's like running around the room just covered in cats. Yeah. And it's a bit Monty Python, quite frankly. Which I'm sure it is. I mean, Thomas Alfredson's got a good sense of humour, so I'm sure he did put that in for some comedic relief. Yeah, he must know how ridiculous it looks. Yeah, but it's the one moment in the film that isn't just so beautifully sombre. So that's the one moment that doesn't quite work for me. Does it get a... I saw the film alone. Did it get a laugh with an audience? Did it play at least when it happened? I can't remember. It might have got a sort of slightly nervous laugh, mm-hmm. like, was, is this intentionally funny or unintentionally funny? It's the one... But, you know, it's, I feel bad that we're even talking about this because it's the one slightly false mm-hmm. note in an otherwise perfect film. I'm still fascinated by what you take away from it. It's all very good. Um, the... the <laughs> yeah, it didn't... It's the, the, the strange little specifics of 
the world of the characters, how Ellie can come in uninvited, but will suffer terribly if she does. Yeah, it, it changes our understanding. It, you know, the vampires tend to be predatory. They tend to be attackers. Um, there's that old, you know, the Bram Stoker charisma that lets you want, that makes them uh, lull their victims and eroticize them. And, and there's none of that in this film. She's quiet and timid and apologetic, and she mm-hmm. doesn't want to be an intrusion. She's she's going to take Oscar away from everything, but she keeps apologizing for it. She keeps trying to give him an out in a yeah, strange way. because she knows that his life's going to be terrible with her. Mm-hmm. See, she's a good person in, in the movie. She is, I right? Think, I think she is. I mean, it's you, not, you it's, get the sense that she's not doing this by choice. That no. It's just how it has to be. Yeah. And there's a sadness to that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And of course, you've got that extraordinary set piece finale in the swimming pool, well, mm-hmm. penultimate scene in the swimming pool, which is mm-hmm. one of the most beautifully directed murder scenes I've, I've ever seen. Yeah. With, the, with her, with, with Ellie's feet just gliding, gliding, yeah, and then so, and then the head landing on the swimming pool floor. Yeah. It's all about the denial yeah. of the audience. That we, I mean, th- there's that story of Polanski's Rosemary's Baby, where Ruth Gordon is behind a door, mm-hmm. and Polanski said that he would go watch screenings, and the entire audience would be craning their necks like a wave in the theater. Everybody just sort of tilting, right. trying to see around a two-dimensional representation of a door. And huh. with this, I found myself looking up, and just sort of yeah. my neck upwards. Yeah, to try and see what's yeah. yeah to see what's happening, or will the camera to move? Yeah, make myself see. God, it's so good. <laughs> um, Have you seen uh, Matt Reeves' the remake? Uh, Let me in. No, it's surprisingly good. Oh, really? Yeah, I, I but would, nothing would nothing would compel me to see that because it's, it's funny because the original is so perfect. I would argue that it serves. Hmm. Reeves is, is smart enough as a filmmaker that what he's done is basically revisit the film in the same way that Carpenter's The Thing takes apart the Christian Nyby film and puts it back together. Uh-huh. And he uses imagery, he quotes it very carefully and sets it in, I think it's in Arizona, in America, in the, in the early 80s, in the Reagan, the Reagan years, uh-huh. and uses that as well culturally. So he's acknowledging right off the bat that he can't make a new thing right but he's going to tell a story and you should see it. I do not, I like Chloe Grace Moretz mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm a fan of her she's mm-hmm. the right person to play the part yeah and Richard Jenkins is, is her older familiar and she's mm-hmm. just wonderful casting it's uh it's surprisingly because I I wasn't dreading it exactly it played the Toronto Film Festival mm-hmm. and we saw it early enough I think it was one of those early August screenings that it felt like they were confident so they were getting out of the way and screening for us because they believed in it and then it turned out to be really satisfying right. and I, I love the original enough that I would have similarly resisted it but yeah it it plays a game with its source that's quite smart okay huh yeah. well my friend my Peter who I co-wrote Frank with um, went on to write Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy for Thomas Alfredson oh. and has now written Smiley's People for him so so Peter, my former collaborator, uh, works with Alfredson all the time. So, do you pump him for stories? Are you? Uh, I did for asking. I did for a while. I don't talk to Peter that much anymore, just because our lives have moved on. It's, which is a shame because I'm hugely fond of Peter, and I owe him so much. Like if I hadn't, if Peter hadn't, I'm mean, not owe him. Like you know, we had like great times, and I like him a lot. 
but also if Peter hadn't suggested we wrote Frank then we would never have made Frank and I would, Bong would never have asked me to write Okja so, so much of my life has been improved because of Peter um, so for a while I asked Peter stories about Thomas Alfredson and, and um, you know Peter's very fond of him and likes him a lot um, but I haven't spoken to Peter properly in a, in a couple of years so. uh, well if this gives you a reason to call well actually I emailed him the other day oh great I said how are you and he wrote back and said he was fine good there you go that's a uniquely British response <laughs> uh, he asked me if I would like Okja and I told him that he would very much like it I can't imagine anyone not liking it honestly no. it's uh, it's wonderful it's so shattering and wonderful and lovely and sad and actually you know it seems to be doing to some people what let the right one in did to me yeah. like it's it's screwing with people psychologically um, it's a film about you know another reason I um, I love it is that it's kind of a film about cognitive dissonance. It's a film about how, you know, it's not Nancy who's killing... It's not Nancy Miranda who's killing all the super pigs. It's us, the consumers. Mm. It's demand, yeah. Yeah, it's demand. And that's one of the reasons why the ending is so devastating, because we're, we're the baddies, which is the theme of my book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed, <laughs> We're the Baddies. Um, and so I... And the heroic people, the Animal Liberation Front, you know, are a little bit stupid too. And, you know, so, so I think Bong and I were really on the same wavelength about a lot of this stuff. Yeah. Uh, um, which is another reason why it was such a kind of joyous collaboration. Like, imagine if Bong had been working with a screenwriter who'd said to him, you know, you know what, I think you're making the Animal Liberation Front too much like the Three Stooges. You need to make them like much more heroic and perfect. Mm. That would have been a terrible collaboration, but I totally saw the value in, in making the ALF a little bit silly. And I also totally saw the value in not allowing the Miranda Corporation to be the kind of bad guys in this film, because we're the bad guys. They wouldn't be breeding these super pigs if we weren't prepared to eat them. Yeah. I was going to say that the film can be read as cynical, but then I realised what world we live in, and it's just... I mean, the yeah. only thing that's fantastical is the level of access, perhaps, that certain characters have. Yes. Yeah. it's all, and that can be hand waved away with emails and things like that. But the, just the idea that all of this is a fantasy—no, it's not a fantasy. Yeah. There's one element that is digital, but the rest of it's pretty real. And even that, I mean, Bong's convinced. I, I'm not up on advances in the in the GM world mm-hmm. at all, but Bong thinks that it's possible that before too long real oaks could exist i wouldn't be surprised i mean there was already the there are lab meat tests there's the the non-sentient meat thing which is right or the non-animate i don't know how to describe it meat in a lab but yeah. that isn't attached to anything which seems a harder sell somehow than something with a face as awful as that would be <laughs> when we yeah. create something it's going to have to be a relatable animal because that way people will understand it. It'd be interesting to see what happens. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm willing, because I'm a vegetarian, well, I eat fish, but I'm mm-hmm. basically a vegetarian. Um, but I'm, uh, I'm willing to try non-sentient meat. I don't see the downside mm-hmm. of that, because right. I like the taste of meat. Right. I just don't want to kill animals. If you can do it without the moral question. Yeah. yeah. I just think about the, the one episode of Better Off Ted where they created meat in a lab and it tasted like sadness. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess we'll find out. One of my favorite out. bits. Oh, that's <laughs> that's um, <laughs> we pretty much covered it, but just in case, uh, mm-hmm. I do want to ask the, the 
the leading question on the, the last question on the podcast is always the same, which is, is there something specific of let the right one in that has that you've lifted or borrowed or, or stolen or otherwise incorporated into your creative DNA? Um, hmm. No, only you know, create only kind of creative jealousy that makes me strive for. Um, let the right one in is, is one of those things that I would have done anything to have written myself. Yeah. There's a few of those things, but one knows that. But it's healthy, you know. It's healthy to have that kind of envy. I, um, happened to me one happened to me quite recently with something. When, oh, S Town. Oh yeah. Yeah, I, I, I had a sort of creative envy about S Town too, and but it's good. It means that you're still alive, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it means you're not dead inside. Yeah. Um, I'm always fascinated when people say they wish they'd written something because. Yeah. I wonder if, you know, once you figure out as a, as a writer, as a person, like, that, you know, I, I got, there was a point where people would say, oh, I never thought of something that way. And I was like, well, I did, but doesn't that mean everyone can have that same thought? You just, you mm. just don't see yourself as having a unique perspective. So I wonder when people say, I wish I'd written that, that that means that it's the sort of thing they want to write or mm. it's the, the sort of thing they think they should have written. Like, how exactly? It feels to me, well, we've let the right one in. Uh, it, it, Funnily enough, with Okja, I feel almost like I contributed to something that is similar to Let the Right One In, because mm. they're, both, they're both sort of magical realist fables about great sadness and childhood friendship. Yeah. So in a way, I, I, I managed to, to do it. But no, with Let the Right One In, I think, I think you know, it, it hit me on this level that was so deep, mm. it made me realise... You know, it was kind of prodding at trauma, really. Right. It's, it's because what, it spoke to your personal experience. Yeah, because it spoke to my personal experience. And, and I suppose the creative jealousy was like, well, if that was inside of me, why, why didn't I bring it out? Yeah. Why, did, why did other people bring it out and not me? Yeah, I've had that response to a couple of things here and there, and it's, it's always very, very annoying because it's got nothing to do with the art. Mm. That's all about me. That's what I brought to it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, when I think of Transformers 5, for example, <laughs> I wish someone had paid me $10 million to throw things at a screen because I could definitely do that. Right. But, yeah. but I tell you, it's, it's um, Let the Right One In and Okja and Frank, I would Ooh. say, are, are all examples of, of things that come from your heart. Um, the best art is kind of wrenched from your soul. I think... Does that mean that you should always be a little bit suspicious if you're coming up with an idea for something that's, that's not the most important thing you've ever written? It's funny. Does, um, does that mean it's bound to not be as good? I, 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 that's, um, yeah. that's a question I, I don't know if, if I know the answer to. Well, at least you're in a collaborative art so someone else can bring some, can see it as that valuable even if you don't necessarily think it's the best idea you've ever had. That's true. But it's definitely good to strive. I mean, when people ask me, like, like how do I be a journalist <laughs> that my, my first piece of advice is always write about something that you really care about because that's you know that because that sort of passion shines through and let the right one in I think the reason why I felt a bit jealous when I saw it as well as just loving it is because it was about something that I really care about mm-hmm. yeah my thanks to John Ronson, whose new podcast, The Butterfly Effect, launches on Audible and Amazon Prime on July 27th and can be previewed right now on audible.com. If you want to know more, um, oh, John can tell you. Yeah, so I've, I've, I've spent the last year, basically the last year or two of my life have been, ever since So You've Been Public to Shame came out, other than the art article or whatever, 
it's basically been two projects. It's been Okja and this Audible series, this audio series I've made called The Butterfly Effect. Yeah. And they're weirdly about... On the surface, they don't seem in the slightest bit connected because one is about a giant miracle pig <laughs> and the other's about porn. Okay. But actually, I think they are both connected because they're both about cognitive dissonance. They're both about the slaughterhouse and how we like to ignore it. So I've made this series called The Butterfly Effect. It's going to, it's going to be out on Audible at the end of July. Um, it's following the flap of a butterfly's wings through to its consequences. The whole season is about consequences of a single flap of a butterfly's wings. Okay. And it's, well, it's about a young man in Brussels called Fabian, and his idea was to give the world free porn. And so he teamed up with some entrepreneurs in Montreal and gave the world Pornhub, which okay. is YouTube for porn. And my whole series is about the consequences of Pornhub. Um, oh, wow. What happens when, when everybody watches their porn for free? Yeah. Like, what happens? That's fascinating. I, I am one of those mutants who has never... I think it's part of my OCD. It's what makes me a good film critic, mm-hmm. if I am a good film critic. Uh, and it, I can't bear pornography because it looks terrible and there's no continuity and it's <laughs> just there's no story and no one cares and I just I've never been able to engage with it right oh, okay because there's movie, no but, narrative well but also the production values and the you yeah. know cuts don't match and people just oh I can't bear it <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm okay. almost I'm an adult male um, <laughs> but yeah I'm just I'm fascinated by the industry though because no one sets out to make a bad product they want to no. sell the thing. Well, I've made it... I mean, I think the Butterfly Effect is a very humanistic, kind of kind-hearted oh, good, good. Um, look at the industry. Not, not so much at the tech people, but at the, the creative people, mm-hmm. the, the, the porn people. Not that this is too mean about the tech people either, but it's... That's just where its focus is. Yeah, but the heroes are definitely the porn people. <laughs> I hope you like it. That's a great slogan. The heroes are the porn people. They are. And there you go. I'd also recommend you check out Okja if you haven't already. It's streaming on Netflix all over the world. And read John's most recent book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed. It continues to be distressingly relevant. You can find John on Twitter at John Ronson, all one word. And you can find Let the Right One In on Blu-ray and DVD from Magnolia Home Entertainment in the U.S. and Mongrel Media in Canada. Make sure you get the version with the original theatrical subtitles. It says so right on the package. It's also available for sale and rental on iTunes. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at nowtoronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. If you want to leave a review on iTunes, that would be very kind of you. There's 12 up there right now, but there's been 12 for a long time. Thanks for listening. I'm afraid you're just too darn loud.